This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1, where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado, The Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, Hardwood Knox listeners. This is Adam Frommel here with Dan Favalli and our sponsors Indeed and BetOnline.ag, who are helping with this episode as always. And this is a fun one as we are almost down to the final four teams in the 2020 NBA playoffs. The Eastern Conference Finals is already set between the Miami Heat and the Boston Celtics in a battle that feels like it's almost destined to go the distance. And we really have no idea how it's going to turn out. I think that both Dan and I are struggling to uh, to come up with any firm predictions and are kind of going to talk our way through that and attempt to come to a final determination. And we also have Game 7 of the surprisingly excellent series between the Denver Nuggets and Los Angeles Clippers coming up. So we will give our Game 7 preview for that series and avoid talking about the Western Conference Finals as the Lakers await their eventual opponent. Before we dive into either of those two series, though, Dan, how's it going? I am doing well. Better than the Bucks slash Rockets slash Clippers, apparently, at this point. How are you doing? I am also doing pretty well. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're recording this on a Monday morning after one of the busiest sports weeks I can ever remember. I feel like it's one of the first times in my life where I, I've honestly felt like there were too much sports. You know, it, it, between baseball being in full swing down the stretch run and the NHL playoffs going on and the NBA playoffs going on and the NFL kicking off and college football kicking off and the U.S. Open, it's it's been like too much to follow. It's, it's on Sunday in particular, by the time Sunday night football was rolling around, I'd like forgotten that the uh, the fantastic game six of the, the Clippers Nuggets series had happened that morning. Yeah, it feels like it's pro- it has to be harder for you because you're editing everything for Bleacher Report, like you edit whatever sports. For me, I'm I'm zeroing in on the NBA. I've tried to sprinkle in as much WNBA as possible, and then I tried to follow the U.S. Open. I really only caught the the final bet- uh, with team. That was fantastic, by the way, that men's U.S. Open final, which is absolutely great. But I totally feel you. It's there's just and it's just so unprecedented too because all of these things are just happening at once, and normally there's some staggering with minimal overlap, but it's just like, you know, the NFL regular season is always a bear and like to have it or a bull, whatever you want to call it. And then to have it where like the NBA playoffs are still going on and the NHL playoffs are still going on. The WNBA is still going on. Like that's just absolutely wild. Like you're always used to the MLB overlap, but you're tacking so much else on. 
And thank you for mentioning the WNBA because I did mean to include that in my list at the top and, and totally forgot. But I've been trying to tweet a little bit more about the WNBA and there are so many fantastic players who are about to start in the playoffs. I've really enjoyed watching Crystal Dangerfield in particular. WNBA, like the players on the teams have done a great job of just like, and I know their bubble has been suboptimal compared to the NBA's, but the content coming out from the players on social media is absolutely fantabulous, as Agreed. I would call it. But Agreed. let's start. This is the NBA podcast for us. Let's start with Nuggets Clippers. What is your, without, I don't want, before any analysis, who's winning game seven? I'm going to go with the Nuggets. So I'm going to stick with the Nuggets too. And it's funny because I wrote a prediction for a staff piece at Bleach Report where I'm pretty sure they misinterpreted my prediction. I tried to make it stream of conscious and they said that I picked the Clippers. I was really picking the Nuggets, saying that the Clippers had to be favored because they're the Clippers. But it just feels like the Nuggets are like have the momentum and just this season's been so weird. I think logistically, I would pick the Clippers though. Just the Nuggets have to be exhausted, and the Clippers have Kawhi, they have Paul George, and they've only been playing well in spurts and still almost winning these games or actually winning some games. But the Nuggets were my championship pick at the beginning of the season, so I'm obligated to ride with them. Look, they're this close. Like No one picked them to win this series. I wouldn't have picked them to win this series, but the only thing that matters is the preseason title pick at this very moment, in my opinion. We we didn't pick them to win this series. Like we, we previewed it and both of us were struggling to come up with explanations for how this series was going to go longer than four or five games. And here we are. It, it is baffling. And I, I, you know, it's, it's a weird position to be in because I feel like we've both been such supporters of the Nuggets and of Nikola Jokic and of so many of their players throughout not just this season, but the last couple of years. But then we doubted them in the playoffs and they keep proving us wrong. So I'm I'm like veering in the opposite direction now. And it's it's tough to like provide objective reasoning for why I think they're going to win game seven, except like I'm 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 done doubting them. Well, look, the Clippers seem like, <clears throat> excuse me, they have to make an adjustment with just some of their rotations. I mean, I know a lot has been made of the Montrez Harrell stuff versus Nikola Jokic. And I agree, but like it's one, I don't think Zubats has been terrific against him. He's been definitely better. It feels like Zubats has just been better for them offensively. Uh, and also Zach Lowe mentioned this on his, pod, his podcast, like Zubats is like fully stretched out. Like when you look at his minutes, like he wasn't playing around 30 near the regular season and now he is. And so what are you, what is the alternative to Harrell? Um, I actually think there are plenty of alternatives. If you don't want to play Marcus Morris at the five, which I think you can do because we're already seeing spurts where Paul George is defending Jokic. So if you're not afraid to do that, Marcus Morris at the five should be fine. Uh, but you have Jermichael Green, who's had his moments during the series too. But the Harold matchup actually is on some level a problem because I was looking before we did this and when Montrez Harrell has guarded Nikola Jokic and it's broken down by partial possessions on NBA.com, the Nuggets as a team in those situations, have an offensive rating of 133. It's slightly higher than 133. That's that's good, I think. That's really high. 1.33 points per possession is very high. So you definitely need to do something about that. And look, you might have to consider playing Lou Williams less, too, I would think, just because they are targeting him on defense, and they're going to be able to to get stuff with him on the floor if they can go at him with with pretty much anyone. And I will say – uh, what's also helped, which is something else that is annoying because I wouldn't say I thought I'd be the only person that noticed it, but Zach Lowe just covers everything, was having Gary Harris back to where Michael Porter Jr. just doesn't have to spend as much time against these like main wing assignments 
has been absolutely huge for the Nuggets. And they're like definitively winning the minutes with MPJ on the court now, which is really surprising given the Clippers personnel. Yeah, you would think that they and look, they can still there. If you go down the stretch, and you're having Michael Porter Jr. on the floor like there are still situations where he could really be targeted. But having Harris absolutely helps them with that. And in the minutes that they've played together this series, plus 14 and 57 minutes when Harris and Porter Jr. are, are on the floor. And so that that's a really uh, big deal. The team is shooting almost 49 percent from three in those minutes, too. The fact that the Nuggets now have that third player, which I which I feel like is why you can feel good about them. It feels like they have a third player who can hit big shots with Michael Porter Jr. there. So it's Mur- it's Jamal Murray, Nicole Jokic, and Michael Porter Jr. You mean a fourth. Jr. You're forgetting about Monte Morris. Yeah, excuse me. Uh, Monte Morris, who How was dare you? Fantastic game six for Monte Morris. He had a great game six. Enough that you you uh, you shouted him out on Twitter while tagging me, which it's, I appreciated. It's funny, too, because I think people interpret it to me that I never liked Monte Morris, whereas <laughs> I really like Monte Morris. Says you are so high on Monte Morris that it's absolutely absurd. But less absurd after Game 6. Right. Look, Monte Morris at the baseline is apparently one of the most terrifying things for the Clippers' defense. Oh. Yeah, but you know, as, as good as, as Morris has played, as, as well as Mo- Michael Porter Jr. has played, it still is going to come down to Jokic. And I, it, it's sort of a weird position to be in now where you know we've, we've called him a top-10 player for a while now. Are we selling him short based on what he did in the last and last year's playoffs based on what he's doing in this year's playoffs. I mean, during this season, during this, this particular series, he's averaging 25.8 points, 12 rebounds, 5.5 assists, 1.2 blocks. He's shooting 53% from the field, 44.1% from three. He has been phenomenal. And, you know, as, as you hinted at with the Zubach discussion, there, there has been no answer to him because if he's, he's operating as a scorer, you know, the, amount of confidence it takes to kind of just like waltz your way into these one-legged fadeaway fall away jumpers that almost touch the ceiling and somehow fall through the net like that that just means that he is totally locked in but if they're sending extra bodies in his way he's always making the right decision and it's making things so easy for for everyone else around him like i just i think that's the biggest reason why i'm i'm sticking with or changing to a nuggets pick but sticking with it now is that I, I just I don't know that there is an answer to him, given how he's playing. He is in complete control of this series and somehow has emerged in a matchup with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George as the obvious best player on the court. Yeah. And look, if he's going to hit like the the somber shuffle looks too, like there's no you're not putting anyone on him. That's really going to no. going to change that. I mean, you could go more aggressively at him when they're running the pick and pops. But then if you're sending you know, if it's Zubats or if it's like, if you're going to have someone just really go after him on the perimeter, like he's going to get around them too, because he's just this season, especially it's been something he could do. Like the way that he could just put the ball on the floor from so far away from the basket in the half court, not even in transition and just, just attack is incredible. And I don't, you know, it feels, I, I, again, I, I feel like with my brain, I should still be picking, the Clippers, just because, you know, Pat Bev probably won't foul out while playing 17 minutes next time. And I don't know that he's been particularly good this series. And I would think that they probably would cut down Harold's minutes if it really just isn't isn't working out for them. But something just feels off about the Clippers right now. And it doesn't really necessarily make much sense. I, like even Kawhi Leonard in in game six, like, you know, 25 points, five assists. But it just felt like, I don't know, I just the, the feeling was just just off. And even look, you have in that game too, you had Paul George hit like a few big threes there. And so to still lose that is like almost 
disheartening. I'm just if you're the Clippers, what is your answer like going into game seven? Like what is is there something you're doing differently? A lineup that you're rolling out? Is there someone that you're identifying saying either he needs to play better or we're gonna play him more? Like what is the you know, like like what is the move here for the Clippers? Or is it just as simple as like like you need to be locked in at least on defense more so uh for a full forty eight minutes? I think it's the latter. I'm not sure there's any like tactical or lineup switch that they're going to make for this particular game. Maybe, as you mentioned, you give fewer minutes to Lou Williams, but even then, like you're sacrificing offense that you're going to need. So I, I think it's I think it's more a matter of of trusting what what got you here and just trying to flip that switch earlier in the game because ultimately, like there there is no significant deviation you can make from what you've been doing. That's going to make a huge difference during this game. It's just a matter of executing. Maybe that's a cop out answer, but it, it feels like you know we've seen for spurts just how dominant this Clippers team can be. But then the foot comes off the gas, and you allow a 19-0 run from the Nuggets that brings them right back into the game, and and that's what can't happen. But I don't think that there's like a tactical switch that you make to prevent that, so much as a mentality shift. Yeah, I, I think the, at the beginning of the series, at least, and I wrote about this, it, the Clippers felt like they were just flipping a defensive switch in the second half, and that really hasn't been there. Look, credit to the Nuggets, because Jamal Murray, Game 6, hit some difficult looks. We've already talked about Nikola Jokic, but like they're not as... I know Michael Porter Jr. is tall and can shoot over anyone, but like they're not on some of his jumpers in Game 6. Like They, just, they could have had a body closer to them, and so... I don't know how much of that is – I don't think Pat Bev deserved to make all defense this year, but I don't know how much of this is also like, you know, he's still not all the way back from his calf strain. And so, you know, you could say like, oh, he won't fell out in 17 minutes in game seven, but like I don't necessarily even know that he's helped them a bunch anyway right. this series. So you probably need – if I had to identify one thing, like you need a third – I don't want to say detonation, but you just need like a, like a third guy on offense in game seven too because, you know, Paul George – not the most efficient version of himself, but like he's been playing better this series. He's looked four. a lot better as the season's gone on. Right. Or as the series has gone on. Four of nine from three in game six specifically. And then Kawhi's Kawhi, and he'll actually probably be better than eight of 18 from the floor, if we're being, being honest. But like, who is the third person? You know, I would say, look, Lou Williams, if you're going to play him 25 minutes, like you're probably going to need, this sounds stupid, you're going to need more than 14 points out of him then. Like it's just, yeah, I like, like better than five of 11 from the floor. It just sounds so counterintuitive so i don't if i were them i would probably look at giving more minutes to uh jamichael green at the five and he did play above and they were i think they were destroyed while he was on the floor during that time but I, i'd probably if you're gonna go away from zubats at the five i might try and you know you're already playing harold what did he play in game six like 16 17 minutes i'm not Something looking at the paper that, anymore yeah. yeah i don't know how much more you can cut it but maybe getting more jamichael green and they were going full mismatch with Morris at the five, but he played 30 minutes in game six. So I don't know where the extra bandwidth is. He is someone that I think you could look at clearly and be like, you know what? They're going to need more out of offense from him in game seven. Like that might be the one player you could look at and say, well, there's a ton of room there. Zubats as well, but he's not reliant. Like when you're looking at, he's not going to space the floor and then he's also not going to create his own look. So, so maybe it's, it's Morris there, but it's, it's weird to feel like, oh, the Clippers should win this game, but then not be able to look at anything they've done and be like, well, they need to do this a, a ton differently. And it's just like, you know, again, we're harping on the Harrell matchup, but like he played under, I'm looking at it now, it's under 16 minutes in game six. How much more do he was the sixth man of the year? How much more do you cut that? Right. Yeah. What, what, what 
gives me pause here is that we have not seen the Clippers in this situation. I mean, they they won the first round series against Luka Doncic and the, and the Dallas Mavericks 4-2. And yet it always felt like they were in control of that series. You know, even, even when it was tied, it still felt like, you know, the Clippers are going to win this one. Doncic is going to have a tremendous amount of difficulty keeping up his level of performance. How much more can Dallas elevate? And there wasn't that like back against the wall feeling for the Clippers. And it's been kind of the same this series. You know, they went up with a 3-1 lead and, you know, they they lost the next two games. But this is the first time where it's felt like this particular unit is in that do-or-die situation. We just don't know how the team is going to respond. Kawhi has a, a good history in those situations. But we're also talking about a Denver team that's now in a Game 7 for the fourth straight playoff series. Granted that leads to wear and tear it leads to fatigue but they've been here before they've already come back from one three to one deficit in these playoffs and they know what they need to do and in a in a series that has seemed so deadlocked with the exception of game one it's it's that mentality change i think that that gives me more confidence in the nuggets being able to do it one more time rather than the, the clippers kind of venturing into this uncharted territory for them and trying to get off the, the historical franchise bugaboo where they have not yet won a game that would put them in the Western Conference Finals. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because it gives you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in the hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer is valid through September 30th, which is my birthday, so you know it's good. There's more pressure on the Clippers to win. And I do think there'll be actual ramifications if they, they lose. Like This is probably where you take a look at the center rotation and say, well, we might we might need a monster upgrade, and that's you know how much are we going to end up paying Harrell? In yeah, if they lose, I don't think they're paying him to come back. Yeah, and look, there's there aren't teams out there with cap space. You can count them on one hand, and there might be a few more. I you know I'll be shocked. You might even be able to. Here's the thing: the teams that have cap space, I don't know which teams would talk themselves into paying Harrell. It's not going to be Atlanta. Uh, it shouldn't be the Knicks, but they have a thing for uh, bigs. Uh, paying bigs when they don't need to pay big. So maybe it's them. Could Charlotte talk themselves into doing it? Could Detroit when they have Blake? I just don't see that. And so th- it gives the Clippers leverage, but I'm just, we've talked about it on the podcast before and it's uncomfortable because he's a really good player, but I don't know how much it hurts if, if they lose him. And I think people point this out too, that he's definitely cost himself at least some money um, in the bubble. And I know he wasn't, he was, you know, dealing with the, the death of his, his grandmother and that he wasn't in the bubble for a long time so like that could potentially be impacting him but like this was a series that people looked at and said like maybe he could play uh better in it even if the Jokic wasn't the 
the best matchup for him. So I'm very interested to see if they lose what ends up happening. It's not, you know, a doomsday fallout, but Paul George and Kawhi Leonard are free agents in 2021. They have the player options. And I would default to they picked to be with the Clippers. But when you look at Paul George specifically, he hasn't won a championship. And so like maybe Kawhi might be okay with just, you know, floating this for long term, but he could be someone who could, you know, have a wandering on Miami with cap space if they've already won a title during this window because they're they're still in it. Uh, does he look? Does he talk to Giannis? Like it, you know, he, these guys can create super teams. We just saw it with the Clippers this past summer. If if they want to, and I'm, I would still think that they'd stay if the Clippers don't win a championship over the next two years. But if you flame out in the second round, like you don't know what's going to happen next year when the Warriors are back, when the Lakers are still going to be the Lakers, might even be better. Uh, so. There's a ton of pressure on it. I think there will be actual fallout, not with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard specifically, but like maybe they look at not just, you know, do they consider letting Harold walk, but maybe they look at trying to make a trade where it's, you know, oh, you didn't think they would look at moving Patrick Beverly and Lou Williams necessarily, but maybe they will. Like those are salaries that can be moved. And if you can bring back, I don't know what you're looking for. Is it a big, is it another wing? Is it a better point guard? Uh, there are things that they could try to do. And so if they lose, I'm officially more interested in the fallout for them than I would be for Denver because we talked about that. We we're free to back that off now, just because after this showing, pushing the Clippers to seven games, I think you've you know you monitor the trade market because you do have that MPJ piece, but maybe you're able to make a move not involving him. Still, with how important Gary Harris has been to you defensively, you can just stand pat and feel really good about going into next season by saying Jamal Murray probably gets better. Nicole Jokic is top five, top seven. That's you know you're talking about. Do we need to change about how we talk about him? I don't know if it's the discussion of, is he better than Anthony Davis? Like, is that still the debate that's being had? Um, is he better than Embiid? Maybe you can make an argument if Embiid had better availability, you'd rather have him. But the fact of the matter is he doesn't like Jokic is better than Embiid now because availability is a skill. And so it's just, I'm not willing to entertain it anymore until Embiid's playing an entire season. I'd put Jokic above Anthony Davis just because I, I'm going to, I'm going to wait offense more than I do defense. But that was already the discussion to me, so I don't think it changes. But having that player, top five to seven anyway, Jamal Murray getting better, Michael Porter Jr. getting better, uh, you'll have the mid-level exception. You should at least uh, bring back Jeremy Grant, has the player option. Like you, If you sign someone, if you make like a smaller time trade, this team might look exponentially better or just might have enough now, which is something even I was contemplating that they didn't before the series started. If coming out of these playoffs – and previewing the 2020-21 NBA season, you don't have the Nuggets as a legitimate contender. I think you're just doing it wrong at this point. And we're talking about a team now that has finished second and third in the Western Conference over the last two years and then validated that in the playoffs both times, even if there were tough series along the way. And as you mentioned, there are so many young pieces who are going to be up and coming, and we've talked about how they can turn some of that depth and maybe a draft pick into an even better piece, you know, a Drew Holiday or if he becomes available, a Bradley Beal. But even as currently constructed, this is 100% a contending team. And, you know, the, the Nuggets fans who feel disrespected by by national media refusing to pick them and refusing to largely talk about them, they they, they should be a little validated right now. Yeah, for sure. I'm totally with you. So our picks are, I feel like I copped out the most. I, I I feel like the Clippers are going to win, but my pick is the Nuggets, if that makes any sense. Like I and maybe it's not I feel like the Clippers are gonna win, but just 
Denver having isn't a, it usually my job to sit on the fence? I know. It's like, just, isn't that my racing, role usually? Just how much energy they've needed to expend. Look, my, first of all, Mike Budenholzer is probably like just sweating looking at Nikola Jokic's minutes the past four games, right around 40 minutes each time. I just coming that's so much energy is expended like and even when you look at their transition defense in game six in particular they've just expended so much energy i'm like the clippers are gonna win they're the clippers but it's it's maybe i just i maybe it's i feel like the nuggets are gonna win but the clippers are probably gonna win maybe that's what it is my pick is my pick is nuggets but i I just don't feel great about it all right so dan's picking both teams to win I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna it's, stick with the, it, with the Nuggets pick. Isn't it that situation though? I, I appreciate you being so defensive. I'm going to pick the Nuggets because they were my preseason title pick. So. I mean, I don't I don't feel particularly definitive about it either, and I don't about the next conversation, which is the Miami Heat and the Boston Celtics. You know, if you ask me to make a pick at the top before we analyze it at all, like I, I don't I don't know what I would say because I'm so 100 on the fence on this series. I'm surprised that you're so on the f- I I think between the two teams, maybe I'm on the fence. My, my pick is going to be Celtics in seven, but it also wouldn't surprise me if they end up kind of running away with this. I think what's going to end up being different is so that if you look at Boston's best players, like they're going to be more comfortable taking the shots uh, that Miami's defense is going to allow. And even just Tatum has been killing defenses from every level now, getting to the basket more. His just, passing has gotten so good. It's and look, he was showing flashes of making like the the less obvious passes during the regular season, but now it's just like his default. So that makes them harder to guard. But in Milwaukee, it's yes, there were some players that were hitting these jumpers efficiently throughout the season, but it was after you know Chris Middleton, like you didn't have that reliable pull up threat, and like the Nuggets are the Celtics. You have Kemba Walker. You have. Jason Tatum. You have Marcus Smart is comfortable taking those shots. You don't necessarily want Jalen Brown taking those shots, but you have him. And so it just feels like the top of where Milwaukee was deeper, like Boston is deeper at the top. Like their best players just stretch a little bit deeper than Milwaukee's does. And the fact that you have, I'm going to say at least two guys that you're comfortable creating something out of nothing on the perimeter. And Milwaukee couldn't even say that because is Giannis's pull-up jumper going to carry. And even if you want to say, Look, give them the two guys there. Like Boston has a third between Jalen Brown and if look if Hayward comes back in this series, and then also, but again, with the comfort of Marcus Smart operating off the dribble, I think that they're gonna break Miami's defense more than Milwaukee did, where my where Miami might just be built to really take away any one given player. And then maybe if you stretch, you know, that that second option, you're gonna make life tough on Chris Middleton with whoever you're gonna throw at him there. Like you had the luxury of uh, putting Jimmy Butler on him. You don't like you can't do that in this series because Boston's best player isn't a big. So like, how does Bam Adebayo help you neutralize Jason Tatum or a Jalen Brown? I I honestly don't know. And the fact that there's only one of of Jimmy Butler, like I just I think Boston ends up being a a much tougher cover for Miami than Milwaukee was. Yeah, and uh, on the other end of the court, I think that's where my biggest concern is for Miami. And kind of, I, I feel like the X factor is how well they shoot threes. Because against against Milwaukee, they shot 37.3% as a team. Jimmy Butler and Kelly Olynyk both went 5 of 11 from downtown. Jay Crowder took 51 threes, made 43.1% of them. Tyler Hero, 42.4%. Duncan Robinson's shot was, was still missing, but he did make 12 threes. And Milwaukee's defense, by design, allows more three-point opportunities than Boston does. You know, Boston makes a living contesting the hell out of every shot. And I, I think, like, 
the more I think about it, and I was originally leaning towards Miami, but you know, the more the more I think about this, I, I, I am worried about those guys not having as clean looks from downtown and just not quite being able to generate enough offense against this Boston team. I think that's my biggest concern for Miami is what happens when Jimmy Butler isn't knocking down three pointers when Boston's going under screens against him and using that to contest everyone else's shots. If those aren't falling, where are the points going to come from? Yeah. And you mentioned Jay Crowder in there somewhere too, might be the, the X factor in this series for Miami, just because is he the guy that you're putting on? Tatum, because maybe you're going to want Jimmy Butler to, to chase around Kemba. I feel like that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm not entirely sure how Miami's going to approach it. Maybe you could get away with minutes using Bam. I I don't, I honestly, this, this it's weird defensively. I'm stumbling through my words. I think we're going to see more Iguodala in this series too. Just because you that's do need point. even more wing defense against this Boston team between Kemba's creation, between Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. If Gordon Hayward plays, which seems to at least be a possibility, you know, Iguodala only played 81 minutes over the five games in the Milwaukee series. And I think we're going to see that number rise rather significantly. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. Not even something that, that I consider. You're going to have to see a lot of Jimmy Butler, Jay Crowder, Andre Iguodala minutes just because when you're looking at Kemba, Jason Tatum, Kemba Walker, like that's those are the three players that you probably want on them. I know Bam is versatile as hell, but I don't know if you even want him on a, I would say the less versatile of those three would be Jalen Brown. Obviously having a healthy Gordon Hayward or semi-healthy Gordon Hayward, throw some weird wrenches into the equation. But the thing I just look at is, and to me, these shots are big in the playoffs is that. So during the regular season uh, among everyone who attempted at least 100 pull up three pointers, uh, Boston had, both Jason Tatum and Marcus Smart in the top five of conversion rates there. And you that's like just not even considering Kemba Walker, who hit 36.5% of his pull-up threes during the regular season. Just having so many of those off-the-dribble threats where Milwaukee doesn't have that after Giannis and, and Chris Middleton, and one of those two options is so flawed off the dribble because he doesn't have the same perimeter capacity. That's where I think Miami runs into issues, but they're... Look, I've underestimated them at every turn, clearly, this season. I am at least giving them seven, but I, I lean towards um, Celtics in seven because I think they at least match up just as well with Miami defensively as Miami matches up with them. And when you're going through the pecking order for the Heat, like, they just don't have... You, I'm, I'm making these comparisons to the Bucks, but, like, let's just look at the Heat. Like, after Jimmy Butler, who's been hitting threes um, at a higher clip during the playoffs... They don't necessarily have that from scratch score. There's Goran Dragic, and then like the offensive pecking order is kind of falling off. Like you're going to be relying more on off-ball movement, and getting role players' looks, or Bam Adebayo creating looks for even his his stars. I don't know that Miami has as easy a time doing that in this series, and it, they didn't even have an easy time doing that against the Bucks. We saw it in the games where Giannis wasn't even on the court. Their offense struggled at times in the half court, and so if that's without Milwaukee's best defender on the court. Like Boston's going to give you like some similar issues with the matchups. The other thing is, I, I think that it benefits Boston that it just went through Toronto, as opposed to the Heat playing the Bucks, especially a Bucks team that either had a missing Giannis or an injured Giannis for part of this series. Like Milwaukee is a fantastic team that is rigid in its style and in its rotations, and Toronto is anything but. You know, we, we saw how many different looks and tactical adjustments Nick Nurse 
made throughout that series, how many different bodies they could throw at Jason Tatum. Well, the Heat are going to do the same exact thing. And I, I think that having gone through a tough series like that already puts them in better position to adapt on the fly than a Miami team that was fairly set in its ways against Milwaukee because it could be. Yeah, that's something to consider as well. So what's your pick? I have Celtics in seven. You have... Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go Celtics in seven. I hope we get I've talked, seven. I've, talk, I've talked myself into that now. I hope... I, I'm always rooting for seven because I love chaos on game sevens. But if I had a pick between the potential Western Conference Finals matchups getting seven games or the Eastern Conference Finals matchup getting seven games, I think I want the East getting seven games. I know Lakers, Clippers is interesting. And even the like the Nuggets just coming within, whether they win or not, one game of making the NBA Finals. Uh, also, the NBA ratings police will riot if it's Denver Miami like that in the finals could you imagine that that would be that would be spectacular for those memes but I I I want every series to go seven but I'm I'm just I don't think I have a great feel for this series and that's why I'm so tantalized by it I'm right there with you it feels like there are so many different directions it could go but I think that the variance tends to favor Boston for the most part but we could even say look maybe it favors Miami because having Bam is like you can just get away. Like you don't. Do you need Kelly Olynyk or Myers Leonard as much in this series against Boston? Probably not. No, yeah. you don't. Uh, before we get out of here, I wanted to ask you really quickly, since we'll be doing deeper dives into them with the Rockets and the Raptors out, and we haven't recorded since. Who are you more worried about? Looking uh, immediately, and this is I say this knowing it'd be easier to say the Rockets, but if we're looking at next season stock, Toronto just has a ton of free agents: Fred Van Fleet, Abaka, Gasol, and so who is. Like who is just the who are you more concerned about, or who do you expect a more active off season from? And I know it's definitely Toronto for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see even bigger blow it up moves. You know, like potentially looking to see what they can get for like Kyle Lowry, as sacrilegious as that might sound. Knowing that this is an aging roster, granted with some intriguing young pieces like OG Ananobi, but it, it feels like as high as the floor is for the franchise, I'm not sure the ceiling is that much higher. And they were kind of like playing above their capabilities during that seven game Boston series. Um, couple that with all of the impending free agents who are going to get money somewhere. I, I think for, for Van Vliet in particular, um, that's the I, one. I, I, that's yeah, the one I feel like, like I feel like that loss alone could prompt bigger changes. Longer term, definitely more concerned about the Rockets, but they can't really do anything with their roster. Like if they find a taker for Russell Westbrook and Eric Gordon, wow, that's impressive. I'd be curious to see what they had to give up in that deal. But I mean, you know my stance that I would like to see Houston run it back, which I think gets a little bit more unlikely now that Mike D'Antoni is gone because he did stylistically fit what the roster wants to do. But because they're like kind of locked into their ways, because those are some tough to move pieces, I think that, as you said, and I, I think said well, short-term concern is more Toronto, long-term concern is more Houston. I think you probably need to get rid of one of Eric Gordon or Russell Westbrook. That would be, instead of running it back, just to give yourself some flexibility moving forward, like to react to this team better. I, I, still, I still come back to the idea that Westbrook, when he was healthy before the hiatus, was playing so well. And it's like right after they moved Capella and really committed to these microball ideas, it, it felt like it was clicking for him. He wasn't taking jumpers. He was getting to the rim. And I just, I wonder how hurt he was 
during these playoffs. Right, and he had COVID. So there's that plus the what was it, a quad injury? But I'm saying, look, Eric Gordon was not good this year. Eric Gordon has been bad for a while. The better, I feel like his defensive value might have surpassed his offensive value this season. And that's not a compliment. <laughs> um, but the, for the Raptors, I, I think short term, you, you just by the sheer number of free agents, you are more concerned about them. And the one that I look to, I think you could get Abaka and Gasol to come back on inflated one year deals. Just looking at the points of their Do you career, want they're in. Gasol to come back. Yeah, he was not necessarily playable in that Boston series. I'd still welcome him back because if if this were like a a Heat series, I actually think he's pretty valuable against the Heat. Against the Bucks, he's certainly valuable still. Uh, but Fred Van Fleet is the one because if his max is twenty seven point three million, uh, I'm not paying, and that's against this year's salary cap that I've just been using as the projection for moving forward. I'm definitely not paying him that. I'm not paying him anywhere near that, even if it's twenty million dollars a year over a long term. I'm getting a little itchy. And the one part mm-hmm. where I disagree with you is I don't actually think Toronto played up to its ceiling in this series. Just Pascal Siakam was so bad and he's better than this, even though he's going through the motions. I think this ends up being a valuable experience for him as a primary ball handler because he was just hemorrhaging turnovers and just wasn't like, couldn't get by anybody. And so I think this ends up being great long-term for him with Kyle Lowry. If Giannis doesn't sign a supermax, or because he has until next season to sign it, if signs point to him, not inking, that Supermax, you keep Kyle Lowry because I think he ends up being a valuable piece to have. He's entering free agency next year, obviously, but if you're recruiting Giannis, to have Siakam and OG and Lowry, I think that's a huge base. I'm more interested just in their free agents, and I would name Abaka and Van Fleet as the two that I'm zeroing in on more because it feels like those are the guys. We know Van Fleet probably getting offers from Detroit, probably New getting York. offers from New York. People have mentioned Phoenix because they have a path to clearing cap space. People Atlanta's men- a fun spot for him, too. Uh, yeah, th- people don't talk about Atlanta enough, I guess because that's a small backcourt with Young and Van Fleet if you play them together. Uh, and then even Dallas. Like, I don't know if Toronto will be interested in the sign-and-trade scenarios that they could offer, but Dallas, if they can dump a salary or two, might have cap space. So so that'd be something that I'd look at. But um, uh, we'll have deeper dives on these teams moving forward. But I think Toronto's offseason, even with D'Antoni leaving Houston, even with people dragging the Rockets for Westbrook, even knowing how Daryl Morey is, I think Toronto's offseason ends up being – more interesting, if only because it might be more telltale. I agree 100%. That'll do it for this joint Adam and Dan portion of the pod. We're going to talk some Hornets next with Dime Uproxes and Lockdown Hornets' Kanata Edwards. Until next time, though, on behalf of the two of us, we will still leave you with the shout-out to the one, the only, the game-changing still, even though he didn't play for most of this year, Andre Godala. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager on than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division odds, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Hello, Kanata. Thank you for coming back on. By the way, after it's been uh, quite a while, I spoke with you earlier this year for a piece that I was working on, but you have not been on the podcast in over a year now. I probably would have pestered you earlier had there been an, a, you know, a regular 
season schedule, but uh, that that went out the window. And I know this is a loaded question during these times, but how are you doing? I am actually doing kind of well. The Hornets have had what I would call a interesting offseason. Radio guy gets fired second time in second two years. Like we set off air, it almost became a defense again. <laughs> again, they've become the Hogwarts defense against dark arts teacher position at this point. Um, new uniforms, the swarm to vote. Like the Hornets have had some interesting stuff go on. Uh, the only thing that kind of bums me out, no lie, is going to be that the Hornets aren't going to be drafting at least till mid November now. So Thanksgiving turkey and draft picks. That's what we're looking forward to right now. Well, yeah, you, that's the you know this wasn't even on the the questions that I gave you, but we were talking about it off air. Is you say that the Hornets have had a busy off season, and like for a lot of people, the off season doesn't technically start until like I guess you could say the draft lottery, but maybe even the draft, and like that's not happening till mid November at the earliest at this point, and yeah. so you're looking at a huge layoff for Charlotte, and I know that the NBA came up with you know these in in market models but how much is just someone who's covering a specific team who was not part of the bubble restart in any format like how big of a disadvantage do you think that this puts them at where they're not going to play you know forget about whatever they're able to do as a team within themselves but they're not mm-hmm. going to be able to play real competitive basketball again until they're saying maybe christmas right now but you and i both agree that it'll probably be closer to martin luther king day if not later yeah, like, this is the crazy part to this whole thing. Like, you're talking about almost 10 months off. You're talking about a developmental curve, especially for a younger team like Charlotte that needs the consistency of playing. And the scary thing is, like, these guys are going to go find places to play, whether the NBA likes it or not. And that's the scary part for me, is that if we're going to start, if they're going to start doing this, they're going to start going to gyms. They're going to start Trey Younging it. And we all remember Trey Young going to that, that gym in Oklahoma. Why where was that was... not a bigger deal? I'm sorry to interrupt. How was that not a bigger deal when that video I, came I out? I don't understand why it's not a bigger deal either, Dan. Like, that's the thing. Like, you had Trey Young out there with not a mask in sight, and there was no pearl clutching. I was clutching my pearls. I was getting the Purell <laughs> out, Dan. I was scared for my life because it's like, dude, what are you doing out there? You're worth over a hundred-something million at least wait till you get to the like wait till you get to your max, rookie max contract before you do that. Don't go out there taking risks all willy-nilly with no masks on for not for nothing. Like because especially after Michael Beasley tested. And I think Beasley testing probably put like everybody on notice because I think Beasley was like the guy that was going to be in the bubble and then it turns out he can't be in the bubble. Mm-hmm. And the fact that that happened and I think that changed how a lot of people started looking at, okay, these open gym runs can't happen or these secret runs can't happen because I I know we talked about LeBron having those, LeBron and Lakers having those, but like I think that started the the trend of, okay, like Beasley doing it and then Trey Young being out there. Like there was a lot of this that thankfully got curbed after Beasley tested positive. Yeah, uh, I still just looking back at it. Maybe first of all, that feels like at least three years ago that exactly. that happened. Uh, it's surprising to me that it wasn't made uh, a bigger deal. Of though, I I did bring you on though to to pester you about about the Hornets, and mm-hmm. that obviously means a lot of draft and free agency stuff. But I I kind of wanted to start with um, the rookies from this year: uh, PJ yes. Washington, Cody Martin, Caleb Martin, uh, Jalen McDaniels. 
Um, what were your impressions of them? You can skip around. Obviously, as I'm most intrigued, and I think most would be most intrigued by P.J. Washington, who was just far more plug-and-play than I expected uh, on on offense. Seems like he might be someone who's going to develop a, a nice little post game as well. But just looking at these four you know, prospects, just what are your what, what were your takeaways for, for them or the biggest ones just moving forward? Honestly, the 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 label for this year's Hornets rookies were is going to be better than expected. All of them came better than expected. PJ Washington, I I think we talked when we talked last year was not on my radar. I was mo- much more of a Kevin Porter Jr. guy. I thought the wing made more sense. And then PJ comes in, hits seven open threes in the first game, and looks like a all rookie first teamer. The only thing that you start worrying about him is I, I actually worry about him on a defensive level. I do worry that bigger guy, like he gets, he gets tends, he's tends to get pushed out of the block a little bit. Mm. Under, like there's a shot of five, nine it bodying him for a rebound that just cannot happen. And that happened. And the rebounding, the defending was some of the stuff that I worried the most about with PJ Washington going forward. But he's, Again, if we're going to talk about building blocks for Charlotte, him and Devontae Graham are probably the two that you list, That you list, and we'll get into Devontae Graham later. But when we start talking about guys like that, P.J. Washington was awesome. Um, Cody Martin was a surprise because I was kind of on the Daniel Gafford plane of we need a center, we need a center, we need a center. Turns out they didn't get a center this year, and they got Cody Martin, who for – all intents and purposes, was a non-factor for, I want to say, the first two months of the season. And then he started hitting shots more and more. Um, I am also, like, again, you start talking about Caleb Martin, who was, an again, undrafted free agent rookie and was supposed to be the guy that could legitimately just score better than his brother Cody. And then he turned out to be much more than that. He turned out to be a better shooter. Neither of them could shoot. And then they ended up being legitimate, not legitimate threats, but at least they know uh, defenses had to at least factor in that mm-hmm. they could hit one. And I'm not going to say they're going to be starters this year. I'm not going to say they're going to, but I, I can see Cody Martin and maybe a little less so Caleb Martin, and it won't be here if it is, but I can see them being rotational guys on really good playoff teams. Because you always need that one guy that that can just got that dog in them to where they can take your best player and take them out for a little bit. They're not going to be the starters, but they're going to be guys that can make anywhere from nine to fourteen million dollars a year in the league, depending on what like a Daniel House type. And again, Daniel House obviously some sensitive subject right now, but they can be a <laughs> Daniel <laughs> Daniel House, yeah, Daniel House uh, type players. So I, I like I like them. And I think the biggest surprise was McDaniel's because Jalen McDaniel, I didn't have any expectation being said he was the fifty-something pick in the Dude draft. Dude couldn't shoot at San Diego State, and then ends up shooting thirty-seven point five percent from three. Exactly, like he was the guy that ended up surprising me the most because he became a and he's a better defender than I think people give him credit for. The only problem is like if and again we'll, we'll get it into it later, but. If you draft a forward here, if you draft a, a forward, like that forward group is going to be a little crowded with Bridges, PJ Washington, McDaniels. Like who gets pushed out if they go a certain way? 
I am of the mind that, again, if that comes down to it, Bridges is the odd man out because I think he's the one. Uh, I think P, uh, McDaniels is going to end up being the one guy that they're going to stick to because I think he's. Yeah, I think he's got he's got length that I think the other two really don't at that position, and I think McDaniel's is going to be good enough to play the three, and if he can play the three a little bit, be your big three. Like, I'll, I would say of all the rookies that are probably going to get that are not going to be here in two years, I'd say it's Caleb, followed by Cody Martin. Like the Martin twins are probably destined for other positions as salary filler. Or as sweeteners and trades. But that's like, again, but that's the thing. Like, this was a better draft than they had any right to have. And it creates some interesting dynamics in terms of guys that will stay on the roster. More importantly, all of these guys, well, again, less so PJ Washington, but the other three, definitely. There's a guy, Nick Friedman, who works for the Greensboro Swarm. And he's the guy that is going to uh, garner a lot of name recognition the longer this goes, because I think he's going to be and en- he's going to end up being someone like a Nick Nurse, that a guy that develop just knows how to develop talent. And when that come again, when we start having those conversations of who are the next coaches going to be, you're going to hear a lot of Nick Friedman in the next two or three years. Well, that, that's that's certainly good to know. Um, I will say, uh, Cody Martin just seems like someone who might just revel in in the dirty work and you he does you feel his presence even if he's not um making his shots or scoring at all was a from the stuff i watched uh over the past 48 hours just a really good passer and like i said seems to revel in the dirty work i will say it was a small sample size the stuff i was watching of caleb martin um i went and i looked it up and he officially has my favorite shooting split perhaps of all time where (laughs) he shoots 36.2 percent on twos and 54.1 percent on threes, an incredibly small sample. We're talking 317 minutes, yeah, um, exactly. Sub 50 shots in each case, but uh, the finishing around the rim was not was not, or around the basket was just not there. And so I, I definitely feel like I see what you're saying. Where if you're picking between the two um, and wondering whether either will stick long term with the Hornets, it'll it'll be Cody. But it's also, I think, like you said, it's a huge accomplishment if you end up finding guys who can, even if they're small sweeteners, while they're still on these incredibly tiny cost-effective deals if they can glitz up a trade to any degree that's a huge win for you exactly so it's a massive win but also the funny thing about that 36 percent that 36 percent is like slightly deflated in a labelton lamello ball way because caleb caleb martin has no fear caleb martin would attack the rim with no fear especially and he would try to dunk on you and a lot of those were those type of plays where it's like, if he just flushed that, that would have changed the entire... They were momentum-changing type plays where he would attack the rim with no fear, try to dunk on somebody, fail miserably. But if he just learned to float or something like that instead of trying to dunk on it, I think the, that becomes like almost a 40% from the field type thing where he's going to shoot... 40, 41% if he learns how to control that aggression a little bit. That's the crazy thing about Caleb Martin. So I think he's, like I said, I think they're going to be good. I think they're going to be rotation guys. The fact that you got four guys that could be rotation good in when you're drafting 12, mm-hmm. 37, and in the 50s, and then you get a UDFA that can also contribute, 
Like that's a great draft class, no matter how you slice it. Quite honestly, you mentioned Miles Bridges, who in my notes that I sent to you, he is mm-hmm. kind of a siren song for me, just because I look at some of the things he he does, and I just feel like he could be really good. But watching him a little bit more in, in prep for this, mm-hmm. it just feels like he can't play. I don't want to say under control, but can't slow down. And so I'm watching him, and now I'm wondering: Is have you seen anything that makes you think he might be a more methodical scorer? Um, I do think one of the red flags, and maybe I'm oversimplifying this, is that his coach uh, James Rago has even said, "I think he's a four in this league." And then you just have to go and roll him out at the three for most of the time this year. I understand that positions are inherently sketchy now; like they might not mean as much. Mm-hmm. But if you're gonna say that. And then the end result is, hey, he's playing the three. Like, there are still different – like, th- there is that little bit of a jump when you're going from the three to the four. Like, you're still not playing these pure wings at the four, whereas at the three, you are going defensively. And even when you're on offense having to go up against, you're going to go up against those pure wing types. The It's funny you mention that because Borrego – um, James Borrego did an interview, I want to say, like two months ago with uh, my partner, Walker Mail of um, Locked on Hornets. And the crazy part was that he wanted to see James James Borrego wanted to see what a four five lineup was going to be with Miles at the four and PJ at the five, and I, it, it would have gone disastrously. But at would the they same have grabbed time, a single rebound? Is the question? No, no, <laughs> not a single rebound, not one. Now, granted, it would have been scrappy because I have an idea what that lineup would have looked like. It would have been a Devonte, Cody Martin, Caleb Martin. And then you fill out with PJ and PJ and, and Miles and rebounds would have been at a premium and often like, again, there would have been a lot of offensive rebounds given up at the time. The crazy part to it is, and this is why I keep saying, I think Miles is the odd guy out. I, I continually tend to think that Miles is going to be the odd guy out because I think PJ is, like I said, if you're going to say you have a fun foundational building block on this team right now. You have two. You have Devontae Graham. After that, you have P.J. Washington. Miles does not do nearly enough for me at the three to say that he's a foundational building block, and I don't think he's good enough to replicate the scoring that P.J. Washington has for you at the four. And this is where it gets crazy because, again, the draft is going to be, and Mitch has said, we're drafting best player. And fit doesn't necessarily matter. I don't fully believe him on that. <laughs> but at the same time, I think that they really are going to go best fit. And if it's a Denny Advia, or again, and I will let you know now in preview for the other one, I don't think they draft Obi, Obi Toppin. But if they draft Obi Toppin at three, um, just follow, again, just set, set your tweet not- notifications. <laughs> I will be done with this team. Uh, just, set, set, just, set, just set them now. Just set them now. Oh, so you're going to go off them. if it happens as opposed oh, to just sort of I'm receding done. into the shadows. Oh, no, 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 no. It's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. I, I I, say this to say there are draft ways that can basically tell if you think Miles Bridges is going to be a part of this future of the future going forward. Drafting a Denny Avia is kind of one. Drafting a, uh, an Obi Toppin is another but I think Miles Bridges is going to be good. I think it's just going to have to be on another team. And that's the thing. And that's where I think, like, 
and when we get back to the drafting of them, because everyone likes to bring up the, you could have had Shea Gildas Alexander, or you could have had a Michael Porter Jr., which looks prescient at this point. Um, I think we have to realize that Mitch drafted Miles Bridges as part of the mandate to make the playoffs by ownership at that time. And they were going to maximize the last year of Kemba Walker. So when you start thinking about it, you have to start thinking about Miles as, I'm not going to say as a relic, because being 22 years old in a relic is two different things. But he was meant to fill a gap in the previous iteration of the Hornets, not necessarily this one. So when we start having conversations about him, you have to start thinking he's probably going to be better as a four. He's probably going to help you a lot more as a four. It's just not necessarily going to be a part of this team going forward, you know? Yeah, and uh, you went more in depth than I did. When I wrote something at the beginning, I don't even like the the unscheduled offseason, I'll call it, about, Mm -hmm. you know, just maybe under the radar trade targets. I listed Miles Bridges just because, one, I I love Miles Bridges, but two, I think it was one of the core issues that you have PJ Washington, you have Miles Bridges, and there just doesn't feel like a clear path for them to play together, even independent of. Um, yeah. this draft and so that was something that stuck with me and it seems like there's I didn't even you know now that they have the number three pick or whatever they do with it I, I didn't even factor that into the equation at the time and so it becomes that much more complicated and it feels like he's Miles Bridge has been in the league for about a decade this was only year two and so yeah exactly if I'm a team I am trying to scoop him up because I do feel like there's a at least a, a solid complimentary like even if it's just Maybe he's playing in shorter bursts long-term or something, but he still very much intrigues me. He, I, I think he's a starter. I think he's a starter in this league. I do think he's a starter, but, again, he's a starter at the four. He's not a three. And I think we've seen enough evidence as to, as to much where he's going to be a great, a great four. He's going to be one of those guys that you put on a closing lineup to defend – threes and fours and help with your sw- help your defense get a little switchy. So if we're going to go like I think he's good, I think he's a starter. I just don't know if he's better than PJ long term and that's the thing that I worry about. You had um mentioned the draft which I'll get to really quickly, but I wanted to touch on Devontae Graham as well. I think the sort of the, even though he was a a even though he was still mentioned in the most improved player discussion, people seemed to be increasingly low on him as the year went on, I felt like, just because they looked at his efficiency and saw that it really dipped. But when you watch or when you even look at the numbers, just of the, not just the on-off splits for the Hornets mm-hmm. offense in general, but some of the shooting splits for the guys that he played with, including Terry mm-hmm. Rozier, for that matter, mm-hmm. the idea of him off the dribble and his just attack mode off the dribble, like it matters to the to the Hornets offense. And he was, look, he wasn't part of the bubble restart. Again, I want to emphasize this. And he still finished sixth in assist um, thrown at the rim. And that's a, that's a mm-hmm. big deal. And now I'm just curious because he has one year left on his deal at a, a cut rate, even bet like even lower than a cut rate. And I'm just curious to know in your opinion, how important you think he is to this team, not necessarily just next season, but, but even beyond that is you have to start weighing his next contract. He is a building block, but there's only there there are contingencies because when I start thinking about Devonte Graham, you have to start thinking about if he's going to be dealt, where the markets that he could potentially be dealt. Does Philly really have anything that the Hornets want? 
The answer is probably no. Oh, Especially, you don't want again, Tobias Harris or Al Horford? Ironically, <laughs> I would. Here's the crazy thing, Dan. Depending on the price, and the price cannot include Devontae Graham. Tobias Harris is very interesting to me. Still, Al Horford is much less so. I, yes. Tobias Harris has played for a number of teams that makes you think that he might be in his mid-30s, but he only, I think, just turned 27 this year. He's still exactly young. 28, excuse me. He turned 28 in July. Exactly. But if it, depending on the price for that, like Philly, again, but again, we're talking about Philly. We're talking about maybe Milwaukee. We're talking about maybe L.A., like the Lakers, like the Knicks that need a point guard. When we start talking about the teams that might need a point guard, think about the market. Like none of them really wow you or have the assets to where it makes sense for any kind of Devontae Graham deal. So I'm always going to say anyone can be dealt because this is remember we have to remember this is year one of the rebuild after Kemba. This is year one. It may feel like year three, year four, but this is only year one. And they were ahead of schedule in year one of this rebuild. You have to factor that in. And the crazy part is for me with Devontae, and he's going to be a free agent. And I think there's a part of me that says, wait until what we see what the salary cap is going to look. Because you follow me enough, Dan. You know, you've seen enough of my tweets to know that I don't know. Again, I want to see what this new financial structure is going to be because they're clearly both going to opt out. Both the players and the owners are going to opt out of the CBA. What I want to know is at this point, what does the financial structure look like? Right. Because if this like dampens down what play, what the uh, point guards get, then sign him now and sign him to what I would say is a four for 48 deal similar to what Kemba got. Give him the Kemba deal now and see if he takes it. And if not, he wants to gamble on himself. Cool. Cause you still have that ability. You're still going to have some of the most cap space in the league and it'll be worth it if he does better. But even if he does bet on himself, there's a potential that he could have worse numbers next year and still improve as a player. And I think, and again, I think we've had this conversation before where Necess- growth is not necessarily linear. And as long as we don't look at it as, as linear growth, as long as there's some fundamentals that he got better at, let's say he finishes better at the rim but shoots less from three. I'm still going to give him, the. I'm not going to give him the rookie max. I'm going to feel okay with it. And we can go from there, you know? Yeah, I mean, look, I, that if he's going to finish better at the rim, you might be looking at you know more free throws and so definitely ways to replace that type of production, I would think even because you look at his two-point percentage this year, under 40, I do think that there are people that ended up lower on him. But if you were able to lock him up for um, for 48, to me, I think that that's like, I would say, better than fair value for the, for the Hornets because I could see him. We need to see the financial structure, but there are a lot of teams that I feel like are going to feel spurned in 2021 free agency no matter what um, the salary mm-hmm. cap ends up looking like. And so I could see him uh, getting a loftier offer, and which is why I would expect him to probably bet on himself unless he's just really down on the financial outlook of the team. But I do think, look, you're, if you're saying it, like, I think it matters that people need to realize he is kind of like, he is a building block for this team. It's not just someone yes. that would turn into this nice, like temporary stopgap and maybe they're looking to move or, or just going to let walk because, you know, perhaps his timeline doesn't uh, just because he's coming up for a new deal. It doesn't perfectly align with a gradual rebuild, but he's just so important to their offense. I can't imagine them, you know, letting him go without being sort of, uh, wowed with with a trade offer. Then that's the other thing. Like we also have to remember that this it's only been a year since the Kemba Walker debacle. It's only been a year, guys, 
So they're not necessarily going to let another great, another at least what looks to be great point guard go without getting something in return. And then this time, get more than Terry Rozier. <laughs> because th- you got to remember about this. Like, you have to, like, think people got to remember when we have these conversations, they didn't see this kind of Devontae Graham coming. If they did, I think they there wouldn't have been a Terry Rozier deal. They would have done something with Kemba Walker, or they would have said, Kemba Walker, let go, let go out there and sign somebody else. I don't think anybody saw this Devontae Graham explosion coming, least of all the team. Right. So Terry Rozier's not here ha- if they saw it coming, I feel like. Exactly. Exactly. Terry Rozier's not here if they saw this coming. And I think people need to factor that in when they start bashing the Terry Ro- Rozier contract, which for me is not that bad. It's not as nearly as bad as it could be. And considering what he gave off the ball and how he's helped them, like it's actually a better contract than people really want to give it credit for, I think. I killed it at the time. I still think the whole Kemba Walker situation was a disaster, but I think the the contract has aged definitely better than those initial optics. And I, a big part of it, for me at least, is like what you said, what he was able to do off the ball offensively for them when you were just looking at his you know catch-and-shoot percentage. like He was just absolute money when Devontae Graham was on the floor with him. Exactly, and, Devont- and that's the one thing. Devontae, I'm not going to say he has, again, we all joke about Steph Curry gravity. I'm not saying that Devontae has that kind of gravity, not yet. But I saw a lot of people defending De- Devontae like they defended Kemba the year before. And that that that's some reverence there. That's some reverence. And we're seeing what Kemba does with one-on-ones right now. Now, granted, not so great against Toronto, but considering what's going to happen next, this is going to get interesting. But when we start talking about like when we start talking about what Devontae does and what Terry does, like the thing that I want to like reiterate and I want people to understand going into next year with with uh, the Charlotte Hornets, Terry Rozier might not be here at the trade deadline. Terry Rozier might play himself into a place where people are like, I got a half a year left and then one year at $17 million and he might be my sixth man. That's not the worst thing in the world. Again, think about a team like Philly that needs a, a ball handler that can that can hit shots. Terry Rozier sounds really good depending on how you want to package it compared for Al Horford, right? If like, you're Philly, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like if you're Philly, like I I thought that LA was going to make a play for him at some point. I still think that's a possibility. Like Terry Rozier as a trade piece at some point is going to sound really, really good to somebody. And it's going to end that contract is going to be a lubricant to a, a further deal rather than it's going to be a hindrance. It's not the Nick Batum contract. And I, I think we do it a disservice treating it like that. Well, it's, it's shorter. Look, three years uh, is yeah. shorter than five years. That's, that's important to note. And then it also helps that like their books are just crystal clear when you move on, like Ooh, after next season, they have, under guarantee contract, and I'm sure, you know, if Co- if Cody Martin and Kayla Martin and Jalen McDaniels are still in this roster, their salaries will be guaranteed. Um, obviously, the P.J. Washington team option will be picked up, but the only guaranteed money on their 2021 books right now is Terry Rozier. And even if you want to just assume the options are going to be picked up and the salaries guaranteed, you have a total of six players under under guaranteed mm-hmm. contracts for like sub $50 million, I believe. Mm-hmm. It is. Sub-, sub $40 million, excuse me, just as a... Plus the pick. Again, when you start thinking about then you throw in the, the draft pick this year, like sub $40 million. You have seven guys, and you're probably... And this all depends, again, 
as we said, on the CBA. But their cap sheet to take on bad deals is ridiculous. So when we start talking about the draft and starting to buy picks, which I'm not sure they do this year, or at least if they're going to do it, they're not going to do it till the trade deadline to take on a whole bunch of bad deals. I, again, their ability to take on bad deals and load up for the 2021 draft, which is what I think they're going to do. I think it's it's going to get really interesting. This offseason is going to be a lot more interesting in, on the trade front than the free agency front, and I can't wait to see what that looks like. Yeah, I think, and uh, I actually won't even say that because we're going to talk about it soon. I wanted to ask you about the, the draft first to set this up. So number three, a uh, great outcome mm-hmm. for them. They jumped five spots. It's, you can't, yes. be, can't be mad about that. Um, do you have a preferred player that they take at that spot or a preferred move if you like someone and you'd rather see them trade down? I think the position they're in, and maybe I'm as someone who – is I'll say like ankle deep in draft prep right now, where normally I should have you know mm-hmm. obviously already been forehead deep since it should have already happened. Um, I, I feel like they're in a beneficial position to where it's there feels like there's three consensus top three picks and two of them are already going to be gone, so you can default to a choice and at least not get killed for it. But also in a draft like this, where maybe nothing feels consensus, like it also kind of opens yes. the door for all these just wonky possibilities where it's, well, maybe we'll just reach, or maybe we'll try and trade down and still get the guy that we like best. The guy I want the most is LaMelo Ball. The guy I feel very, very confident that is not going to be there at three happens to be LaMelo Ball. If Again, if I'm going to say my dra- what, my, what the Hornets draft board probably is, it's probably I would put a LaMelo Ball up there. I'm not sure they're as high on Anthony Edwards as everybody else. So right after that, I put Denny Avia. And I know that the building, I know the Charlotte Hornets love Denny Avia. Mm-hmm. And I am, again, that's, if I was going to tell you who I thought the building was going to pick, Mitch was going to pick, it's Denny Avia. I would feel, and, but the, like literally, there's a lot of this that I'm not sure of. I think it's Ball, I think it's Avia, and I think it's Hayes. That's their that's their top three on their draft board. I don't think Wiseman is there, and I think they think Wiseman is slow. I think and slow on a defensive from a defensive capability, and as we're seeing. Bigs that can't really defend are guys that can easily be played off the floor. Even some and bigs that can I, defend can be played off the floor. Yes, yes, exactly. Kevin Durant has pointed that out repeatedly in the last, I, don't, I would say, 36 hours. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I would say this, though. Like, if we're going to have we're gonna have this conversation, like, I don't, again, if and I hate to say center has become the new running back position, but center is kind of the new running back. And... They're not the type of guys that you draft with top 10 picks. That being said, if there was a way you could draft down, get some more assets for 2021, maybe take on a bad contract on top of that and get a, a 21, like I said, get 2021 first pick, first round pick. I like a Kongwu. Like if I'm going to say there's a center that might attract me, I think it's a Kongwu because I think the way you're going to have to go when we have these team, when you're building a defense and you're having a guy that can defend at the rim and switch at the pick and roll, I think Okong was the perfect center. I just would not draft him with a top three pick. I, I just, you, you just can't. You can't justify it at all because he doesn't have the offensive game to justify doing that. But if you're going to tell me I have to draft a big, it's Okong over Wiseman. 
And it's even then Pakuka, uh, Pakuka, I can't even say the Russian kid, Alexei Pakuka, Pakuka, ah, I'm not even going to try it anymore. But, um, <laughs> but the Russian kid is the other, other big, I, I, I'm definitely afraid of Wiseman. I, I think, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. Like I'm, I'm definitely afraid of James Wiseman. And after that, like, and people are going to bring Obi Toppin up and I will say this now. If you were going to draft, and I think you've seen me tweet this, if you're going to draft Obi Toppin, he better be like Phoenix Amare reincarnated, and I'm not sure he's there yet. <laughs> I'm with you on James Wiseman. Um, I just don't see it on defense. And again, I've just, no one should take my word for it, just with the amount of stuff that I've watched. I don't see it on defense with him. Like I just don't see the switchability there. And like you said, it's, it feels like he's slow. I could definitely see him developing into more of a versatile offensive weapon where it just feels like he has a good feel for the game with the ball in his hands and can do some face-up mm-hmm. stuff. And if you're able to expand your jumper, that's absolutely huge. But it's like you said, if you can't you know, switch the pick and roll at the bare minimum, I would say, like yeah. uh, you can become a defensive liability. If not during the regular season, then most certainly in the absolutely playoffs. Absolutely in the playoffs, yeah. And so if I'm at if if the Hornets are at number three and he's still and it goes you know Edwards and then balls off the board or whatever order it is um, and Wiseman's still there I think in that situation like you can definitely justify taking Denny Avia there but if it's anyone else that's I think when you have to start looking at trading down. Yeah, and I think that the problem becomes if Ball's gone and you trade down, who's actually trading up? Like that's the thing. Like is that how how worthwhile is that pick? Because I'm not sure people, I'm not sure teams are all that enthused with Wiseman either. There's not enough tape on it. Right. It might be. Like, that's going to be a situation where they're probably more willing to trade up if it's Lamelo Ball who's available, which then defeats the purpose. If Charlotte is really that high on Lamelo Ball, I think they're higher. I think they're higher on them. I also think, like I said, I think Killian Hayes has a sneaky spot, has a sneaky chance of getting in there at three, because I think hey, I think they like Hayes a lot more than people think. And I also think Hayes, when we start talking about developing young guys and Nick Friedman in the Charlotte Hornets, I think they, they can develop a young guard. I also think that they believe that wing is a much more of a bigger deal than drafting a big. I think they realize that drafting a big maybe at 32 or maybe, again, or at drafting a big at 32 and then potentially drafting a project big at 58 is what they're probably going to do. Like a Naturu there at uh, Oric or um, like literally just, I think they end up drafting a big at 32 or moving up to draft one of the fir- late first round bigs there. Um, I, I think that, I think that's a good, you're going to know the team more than I, but I, th- I think that's a good stance to take. And it's like you said, you don't want to go as far as saying that center is the new running back, but when you're looking at a top three pick and, especially in this draft at who's available. I just don't know that you want to go that route with, with third overall. And, but it is an interesting question of who's going to want to trade up to take said big. And you look at the teams that are after them and it's like maybe Washington at number nine. And then you're getting into some one, what is Washington giving you? In addition, they should not be trading mm-hmm. their 2021 pick at all. And then you're also getting into iffy territory, whereas, you know, um, Denny's definitely going to be off the board at number nine. Mm-hmm. I can see Killian Hayes, if the Knicks were smart, taking a chance on him. So then, you know, you that, dra- that is, that's a dicey proposition, Dan. That's a <laughs> dicey proposition, the Knicks being smart. Uh, that's an extremely dicey proposition. Uh, so that's like, there's also the, the feel of 
you know, what would be too low to trade down because you don't want to necessarily miss on someone. So what you're saying is then there's really not, there's more so a consensus top two and it's going to be absolute anarchy at the three. Yeah, exactly. And I think, like, I think they can't draft, I, I do not believe they can draft lower than five to get the guy they want. Because I don't think, Den- I think also think Denny, depending on who's the coach over there in Chicago, and we have, we have no idea who that is yet, Depending on who the coach is, I think drafts Denny at four no matter what. And I think Denny, if I, if, again, I think I would throw this name out there that, that who he reminded me a little bit of, but Andres Nocioni, a guy that came in there, gave you about, before his back gave out, gave you a good 13 and four, and again, became a really good role player. And if you can get a really good role player, in a dicey draft like this, I think you can take it and run, quite honestly. And then at the same time, prepare for 2021 and prepare for that draft and that loaded draft full of stars, kind of, quite honestly. Now, would you, the last draft-related, maybe not the last draft-related question, but the actual draft-specific question I'll ask you is, if given the opportunity to move up to a two or a one, and let's say it's a situation where you can guarantee that you get to take Lamella Ball in that instance, are you giving up Miles Bridges for that small of a jump? Is that how much you believe yes. in the Lamella Ball? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I wouldn't do it. To, I wouldn't think twice. I really would not think twice because I think what what Lamella Ball does for this franchise is it opens up. I, I think it it does one of two things. You can go smaller, go Ball, Rozier, and Graham have that filled out. You still have you still have PJ Washington. And as long as you still have that thirty-two pick to pick up, pick up a center, and then ride out a um, ride out a Bismack Biombo on a one-year, one or two-year deal for little money, or some, and you have your you have your rotation basically set because the way that this goes, if Lamelo Ball is a part of this team going forward, as much as I would miss the lob threat from a Miles Bridges and a Lamelo Ball. I really want LaMelo Ball here because I think he can be – I think he is the star of this draft. As much as I like Anthony Edwards and his physical gifts, LaMelo Ball is a real star of this draft. LaMelo Ball scares me. I mean, Anthony, this whole draft scares me at the top where it's Anthony yeah. Edwards where his shot selection was so bad and the percentages aren't great, but just the ease with which he gets to his step mm-hmm. back, I'm like, oh, that intrigues me. LaMelo Ball just terrifies me off base the minimal things that I've – I've seen from him. I'm wondering if he'll ever be more of an, an efficient scorer in the NBA level, and I'm wondering what you what ends up happening to him on defense in the NBA too. I think the one thing about Lamelo Ball for me, at least, is I think him being again say what you want about Charlotte, it's relative obscurity, whatever. I think the obscurity helps him. I think the the ability to just go to work. I think the structure that they the Charlotte Hornets have put in place. I trust it. Remember, we had this conversation last year, Dan, and I didn't trust any of it at that point. I trust the structure they've put in place without Kemba. I think that they've done a lot of steps to work with young players and develop young talent. We just saw it with four guys. And there were there were a couple of those that were, again, three of those picks were really, really dicey. Right. Like, so I trust them to develop guys with dicey stuff. Now, now, mind you, getting and also this is the other thing: if this coaching staff could get Terry Rozier, a guy that was a known malcontent, 
in Boston to play ball, I am not going to be worried about LaMelo Ball at all. At all. I'm not. Because Terry Rozier could have pitched a fit, could have said, I came down here to be the man. I came down here to, again, to get away from Kyrie, to get away from Boston, to get away from being the scapegoat, and instead became a really great teammate, went off ball, and allowed for Devontae Graham to grow. I really do believe that this team is really good at communicating what's best for the team. So I think that's that's why I don't worry about the shot selection. That's why I don't worry about a lot of this stuff with with a guy like LaMelo Ball. Also, remember, we got the best of Malik Monk before the unfortunate drug suspension, too. So mm-hmm. when we have these conversations of are, are they going to fit in, I trust the locker room to police its own. And I trust that, they're again, whoever's going to dra- be drafted here is going to fit in kind of perfectly. Were you making a sales pitch for the Knicks to continue trying to trade for, for Malik Monk there? Felt like a nice little convenience. No, no, no. See, the thing is, I still believe in Malik Monk too, though. Like that's the crazy part to this. I still believe in him. I really, really, really believe in Malik Monk, and I think we were going to see the best of him. And he wasn't going to be the starter, but if he could be Lou Williams, I think he was. I think he still got to believe it or not. And I believe uh, Mitch Kupchak when he says this. I think they really do believe him in him in that building. And I think they believe in the growth as a person that he makes. So I really do think he's still going to be on this roster. And I think the other thing is he's kind of tanked his stock to the point where he he's probably, yeah, he's tanked his stock to the point where I think he's going to be just fine with a solid five. Again, I'm not going to say vet minimum, but I'd say five to $7 million. And it's going to end up being one of those contracts that becomes a steal later on. I feel that good about it. Wow, I'm gonna so everyone can mark that down. We'll come back to this as as receipts. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about the the Hornets free agency approach and how you think yeah. they should handle this. I we don't know what the cap is going to be. I've just been using the 109.1 million from this season as mm-hmm. my placeholder, and with where they landed in the draft, um, and kind of just. I, I wouldn't call it guesswork. I'd call it common sense work of who they're mm. going to renounce. I have them at kind of a shade under $19 million in room, which is more than, I would say, 25 other teams at least in mm-hmm. the NBA, and probably even more than that when you look at what Miami's doing. I don't know how they renounce Crowder or Drogic after this this uh, postseason. What do you want to see them do? Are there any players that stand out to you? Or you've already mentioned that you'd rather see them – um, be what you know, Lazarus Jackson of uh, uh, the Detroit, who covers the Detroit Pistons, calls sin eaters, where they eat these bad contracts. You've already mentioned that. Is that the focus you want to see them have, or are there actual players that you want to see them go after with this money that they're going to have? I want to see what the market for Jakob Potal looks like. Interesting. I kind of want. I want to see what the market for Jakob Potal looks like because I would love to see what someone would bid for him. And if San Antonio matches, I'm not saying you give him the full 19, but if you offered, I don't know, 75 for, I'm sorry, you can't even do that. It's like 60 for uh, over, like again, 60 for, for four years. I would kind of be okay with that. Wow. And if not, then you sign, again, if not, you sign a Bismack Biombo for literally 
the vet men, because I think he'll come back for that, because I don't think his market will be anything like it was the last time he was a free agent. So you're saying his bird rights are not important coming off his $17 million salary? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're not very important. They're not very important at all. Um, like, if, if you offered him the vet minimum for three years, or again, Bismack Biombo had probably his second best season as a pro this year, and it probably went unnoticed by a lot of people. And the biggest thing he might have done was be the vet leader that Marvin couldn't be because he moved on. Like, that's the biggest thing he did. So when we start talking about guys that made contributions deeper than the stat sheet, and I hate that cliche, but Bismack Biombo kind of filled it out. And considering that, I don't think that Cody, Mo- Cody Zeller is going to be on the roster for much longer. And I don't, again, Nick Batum's going to be on the roster, but he's not going to be very vocal, and he's going to be wearing some of those really fancy, fancy French suits more than he's actually going to be wearing an actual jersey. Like, I, you're going to need somebody as a vet a vet that's actually playing. So I kind of need, like I said, I need, I, I think they're gonna, going to need that vet that's always been there for continuity purposes. And I really do think Bismack Biombo is going to be on the roster. But I'd love to see Potal here. I'd love to see Potal here. And if they sit, if they eat a bad contract or two, I would not be surprised. I just think they do it via trade. And I do think that they do have two contracts. One's going to be easier to do to take on a bad contract in Cody Zeller. The other one, if they take on that, again, also get your notification set for me if they take on that Horford contract and they use Batum to do it. Oh, boy. That, yeah. Boy, I don't even know what Philly's incentive is in that deal that they could give up for for it to be viewed as okay for Charlotte because I don't think that they're going to give up Matisse Thibel in that deal, and then you're looking at exactly. what, a late first-rounder and then Zaire Smith. I don't think that... I Look, and I actually... The way you feel about Harris, which I don't disagree with, I kind of still feel a little bit about Horford. He had you know, he had injuries this year and then was on a team that really just wouldn't let him pick and pop and was trying to shoehorn him into a roll to four. So I think he could still be really good, but for it has to be the right team, and the Hornets are not... I wouldn't peg them as the right team right now because they're not looking to to win and so there's that element there exactly i I just don't know what you sweeten it if they offered thibel i think i would do it if i was charlotte just because he does seem like he's going to end up being a borderline transcendent defender even if the um kind of low volume okay shooting we saw was was an aberration the only thing that i worry about in any Tybal thing is what does the backcourt look like because if we've talked again as we talked about if they get Lamelo ball does Tybal make sense with with graham and I'm not, not even, yeah, Graham and LaMelo Ball. Does Tybal make sense in that background, in that backcourt? Because then you're worried about shooting. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you're not going to have him at the four if you're trying to run with those three. Although I guess you could in hyper small lineups. But yeah, you could in hyper small lineups, but at the same time, it's one of those things like also it really does depend on who you draft. If also, if they don't draft a center, they go all wings, they're basically telegraphing that they're going to deal with Philly. I feel like <laughs> I feel that confident. If they go wing, wing, and again, Desmond Bain is the guy that I I uh, I read the article, the uh, athletic article by Sam Bassini, and he put Desmond Bain on my on my radar. And Dan, when you look at this kid, you're gonna wonder how he makes it to 32, because that's the thing. Like the, this all, like the draft is gonna telegraph a lot of what they're going to do 
because if they don't, if they go wing wing project big in this draft, and I think there's a po- there's a real possibility of them doing that. I am one of those that believes that again they're going to telegraph that that Horford deal, and for me, they need at least two. They need two first rounders. They need two first rounders, and none of them this year. I need a 2021 first rounder. Period. Wow. I need one, one of those, at least one of those to be that. And then Zaire Smith and Tybal are basically overlapping players, but give me Tybal. Like, literally, it's got to be a really sweetheart, godfather, I can't say no. Almost, and I want to say almost borderline Russell Westbrook, Chris Paul. Like, the, like I don't need OKC amount of picks for for Chris Paul, but I, I kind of need at least two, maybe three. Or a prospect May, and, and a pick type deal. Yeah, exactly. I need a lot. I, I would need a lot to take on that deal that goes on for three years. How do you feel about the, the sticking with the free agency thing for one second? How do you feel about the, I think the most popular target for them listed as being Christian Wood? How do you feel about that potential pursuit? It makes sense, but what's the price tag? Like, I, I mean, if you're willing to give Jakob Pertl four and 60, I would think Christian was going to get substantially more. I'm not, I think Jakob Pertl is good. Um, I just, we've yet to see him really in a more expanded role and even just watching him try to take on some more minutes in the bubble and then getting into foul trouble so often concerns me. He's definitely young enough where he can iron that stuff out. Um, but, you know, I don't know what the price tag on Christian Wood would be, but I would think he costs you more, um, to me at least, than Jakob Pertl would. The only other thing about Christian Wood that makes me think that Charlotte is not a destination is that, remember, he's been in this building before. Yeah, now, granted, true. it's different than his last experience here. But I also think that he was not here under the best circumstances. He got his he got his minutes jerked around, and I know that he wasn't necessarily happy with his experience. I'm not sure he's willing to sign up for more just because it's more money. I have it. I have my doubts, and also that, like as much as I like Christian Wood, and I again, it's one of those things. I hate to throw good player, bad team on him, mm-hmm. but but it's like it's almost like I I kind of worry about those stats being inflated more than they actually again that they're a little inflated because it was on a bad team. Uh, that's certainly fair enough. He's I, I I'm definitely going to be I worry about that. I legitimately worry about that one. <laughs> um, I I feel like I'm higher on him than, than you are. I kind of just like it. Feels like he gives you so much optionality on the on the offensive end. And he can play alongside a different big, but I hadn't really considered that he'd been in the building before for Charlotte specifically. And that's definitely something that's that's worth considering. And then you know you're looking at it for him or even what you were willing to pay Jakob Perto. Like that's most of. Uh, if not all of Charlotte's cap space. And so, you, like you said, you still have the Nicholas Batum deal and the Cody Zeller deal if you're looking to take back bad money. But you know, part of the appeal of some of those situations also might just be if Charlotte's able to you know, save some room at the top where they have an extra 4 or $5 million of wiggle room to work with in those prospective trades. You kind of already touched on this, or maybe it was more so the, the polar opposite of what I was asking you here when you're saying you don't want to see them go after Al Horford. Have you given any consideration of maybe situations where uh, – there are bad contracts that you would want to take on because you think the team would be willing to give up something sweet or maybe just even trade targets that you want to see the Hornets go after because you think that they just might be good long-term fits. Um, It's funny because, again, while I'm not that high on this draft, 
buying a pick in the 20s and taking on a bad contract. Uh, I know that it's been brought up to take the Torian Prince contract for like 19. That makes a lot of sense, even if that means Torian Prince is wearing street clothes more than anything else. Um, I will say that would be a terrible look for the Nets if immediately after giving him that two-year extension, they turn around and they need a first-round pick to get off him. It would be a terrible look, but would you rather have the terrible look or would you rather lose Joe Harris? Yeah, I don't know what for them. I don't know what their you know team governors are willing to pay in luxury tax. Yeah. I would think that you would be you know from the outside you just say well just pay it. But uh, when dollars and cents get involved, you don't really know what to expect from Kyrie and KD. I I do think that's that's a I wouldn't even call it a fair stance to take on behalf of the Nets, but it feels like it might be a possibility they would do something like that. I would think they'd prefer to use him as part of a larger deal. But if you can take on a pick for him or just another contract, and you're the Hornets in kind of the late teens and early 20s, and I don't know where he's going to go. I've seen him mocked all over the place, but uh, Patrick Williams is going to end up being my siren song for this draft. And so if you end up in Patrick Williams' territory, I would take on probably more than most other teams would take on for a chance to draft Patrick Williams. Patrick Williams is one of them. Um, Tillman is another. Tillman is another one where, again, just the, the amount of, as a big Drafting, drafting that big that can potentially fill the Cody Zeller role of being the gr- really good screener, and then being that smart guy that hits the hits the shooter in right in the pocket. I again, like him and Tillman. Like Tillman is another one. Like there's a lot of these young project bigs in the ni- in the nineteen through thirty range that I wouldn't mind buying a pick from. And if it costs you getting a Torian Prince, or if it costs you, I don't know. If twenty six is available, if they want, if Boston wants to get get off that money, then hey, I'm kind of down to do that. And if it costs you bringing on Enos Cantor, who does not want to be here, and I know that for a fact, um, I would do that. Like there are there are methods of just buying picks that I think they can do, and I think that's what we're gonna do. like buying picks late and taking on bad contracts for picks late. For and again, this is just me like seeing what worked in Greensboro, mm-hmm. and again, if Greensboro is going to be a thing or if that training staff is going to stay in house in Charlotte, because we have no idea if the if the G League is actually going to be up and firing by the time next season comes. Like, I trust the development staff that much that if they bought a pick and it turned out that we had to use Enos Cantor for twenty something games and you cut him in December or you cut him before the uh, again, he becomes one of those waiver wire claims that might help might or might not help you on a team going to the championship like if that happens i'm more of buying i'm in buy pick mode i'm in sin eater buying pick mode and i I, like i said patrick williams tillman a lot of these guys i like in the in the later later part of this draft that can legitimately help a team and i would love that team to be the charlotte hornets for once it's funny because looking at the financial landscape of the NBA and all the revenue they lost this season, all the revenue they're probably going to lose next season, I would default towards saying there's going to be teams out there that are willing to give up uh, bad money contracts with sweeteners attached, just like thinking about it that way. And then I go through the teams and their rosters and their contract situations, and I find it very hard to identify like squads outside of Philly that I could really see doing that. Um, I hadn't really considered the Torian Prince one. That's interesting if Brooklyn gets super pocket shy um, when looking at Joe Harris's next deal, just because they're, they're a tax team mm-hmm. either way. And so all the money they spend 
you're just paying further into the tax. But it, when I go through and look, and I've, I've done this for stuff that, that I've been writing, it's just so hard for me to at least identify situations where that would be the case. I think a lot of people will point out Houston. Uh, Houston just isn't going to give one, give you any equity, <clears throat> excuse me, in this draft. And I don't even know what they're going to give you in general. There's nothing, there's nothing of value. There's nothing of value. Like, the only thing I would do, quite honestly, like, like Covington's the most popular aspect uh, asset, and they're not going to give him up for cheap. And that's even, even if Maury's there or not. Like, Houston doesn't make any sense to me. And, again, if you're Charlotte, what does Houston have that you actually want? And that doesn't include James Harden. Think about that very, very carefully. And unless James Harden, unless... Unless Tillman Fertitta is that deep in the red, they're not going to sell James Harden for pennies on the dollar. And if he if they do, then he should be forced to sell. Quite honestly, yeah. I mean, so hopefully, I don't think it'll get that drastic. But I'm, I'm with you there. That would be franchise malpractice if it came to that. It would, and like that's the thing. Like if you're the Hornets, the only guy that ever really you would consider is Robert Covington. That's it. And that's not a guy and, you dump because that's a guy that you know they could actually probably get value for. Exactly. So that's the only guy of value. Maybe an Eric Gordon that you would take on. And I stress maybe. But again, what are they? Like, are you taking Daniel House for Eric Gordon? Like if, if Daniel House is the sweetener, are you taking that for Eric Gordon? Taking him for Eric Gordon, excuse me. Ironically, everything aside, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, his, I, his I honestly, contract is nice. I'll say that. It's just, I don't know if... You know, like is that is that enough to take on Eric Gordon's deal? Would be would just be my stance. I like Daniel House. I just don't know if that's enough in a vacuum. I guess Hornets in a situation where they can view it as enough. But that that Gordon extension is really long. That's a really long yeah, deal. <laughs> it's a really long deal. And actually, now that I think about it, no, you okay, don't good. do that. Thank <laughs> you for pointing that out. Thank you because because the whole time I'm thinking about that, it's like. You have Daniel House, but you may end up developing two Daniel Houses in the Martin Twins, and that becomes they again House becomes redundant at that point. So, yeah, not nah, not nah, you're right. The more I think about it, the more you're not taking on an Eric Gordon contract, despite how clean your books look right now at this point. Because I personally, like I say, there is going to be hard to deal that Nick Batum contract, but at the same time, there's going to be someone who's going to try. I feel confident in saying someone's going to want that $27 million in savings and it's going to be, but at the same time, considering what we know about the NBA financials right now, how valuable is that expiring contract of $27 million? It might be as a third party facilitator. And so the situation mm -hmm. that I'd be thinking of specifically would be like the Bucks and the Thunder are trying to hash out a Chris Paul deal, but you're looking at the poo poo platter of things that Milwaukee's mm -hmm. going to give up, and those are all multi-year contracts. And so if they can send Batum to the Thunder and the Hornets are willing to take back some combination of in Eric Bledsoe, uh, you have, depending on who else is involved in there, you know, there's... Ursa. And I'm assuming in any Bledsoe deal, that means they get... Ro Rozier's got to go in that case, right? I guess... I, it would it would so there's so much money in the air there that mm -hmm. I, I, that he might have to go, but they also might in that scenario they might not have to trade him. Maybe that's something they view independently. But I'm wondering if you know Milwaukee has Dante Divincenzo. They you know if you could get a distant Milwaukee first round pick since they've traded theirs, I believe through 2022. 
Um, that mm-hmm. would just be something that entices. If you're going to help, I, I think that would be the. I think my point is that would be where Batum's contract is most valuable in a deal like that, where a team like the Thunder is giving up a monster salary itself, but isn't really interested in. You know, Eric Bledsoe is a good regular season player, but they don't want the the two years that he's guaranteed after this one. And even if it's a you know, Ursan Eliasova and Robin Lopez, yes, they're expiring, but they don't really jive with what the Thunder are trying to do. And even if you end up getting a George Hill or a Book Lopez in that scenario, which I think Milwaukee would sweeten the hell out of the deal to try and avoid giving up either one mm-hmm. of them. Uh, but if you're talking about those players, those are good players. I'm not crazy about the Brook Lopez contract when you look at it going down the line, but they're still not guys who fit what Oklahoma City's trying to do. And so maybe as Charlotte, you can come in, you're giving up a tomb, and then you're getting, depending on what you're getting back, Dante DiVincenzo's in the air. Um, there's probably a first-round pick involved, and like that's what you're getting for your troubles. It would just depend on, obviously, the the level of contracts that you're taking back. If it's Eric Bledsoe, maybe the compensation's a little bit higher just because he has two guaranteed yeah. years left. Um, I would actually need more compensation for the Brook Lopez deal, which might be an un- unpopular take there. But if it's George no, Hill... No, it's not. Yeah, it, it, but it, if it's... It, like, you know, go ahead. All you. Like, I, I, completely, under, I pl- completely agree with you. Like, legitimately, Brook Lopez is going to have to re- require a lot because he's still a functional piece and he'll remain a functional offensive piece for a long time because he has that long-distance shot right there. And he's, a, he's become, surprisingly, a re- ridiculously good defender, which is something I don't think anybody was going to say five years ago much less his reputation five years ago compared to what it is now where it's like oh he's really someone who could just get you points in the post but he isn't much of a defender and he's not going to space the floor too much and now he's like this exclusive three-point chucker who uh made it Mm -hmm. all defense team yeah like it's crazy it's absolutely crazy the, the the just reputation that it changes but again back to the batoon contract like i think someone i think Someone's going to ask about it because I think the financials and what the salary cap is going to look like are going to be really, really interesting going forward. I th- Again, but also, as I told you, I think most likely the guy that's going to get dealt is a Cody Zeller. And I think, I know Vicini has said it, it'd be the last possible option, but Cody Zeller being, dra- being drafted and traded up to number two to Golden State, and again, granted, Using that traded traded player exception and only ha- getting Cody Zeller out of it feels like a failure. <laughs> but at the same time, at the same time, he kind of fits what they want to do, and that's the crazy part to all this. On off split superhero Cody Zeller too when he's healthy to play. Yes. Uh, the final, yeah, exactly. The final thing I was going to ask you here is what's the most undercovered or misrepresented thing about this team moving forward, or just something that I didn't ask you about. The most undercovered thing probably is going to be, like, I want to see what people, uh, again, and we talked about it a little bit, but the development staff here. Because I think they developed four, they, they drafted, they discovered, they developed at least four rotational guys. How Where they are in the rotation, I'm not going to say. I'm not sure they're starters, but I think they, are, they can contribute in the NBA. I think this team is better than this team overachieved. I will say this now. I truly believe that James Borrego overachieved with this team, getting them to twenty four to twenty three wins before the the uh, stoppage happened. I do think that this team is going to be worse next year. This team will finish with less wins, 
but I think they'll be better in aspects. And as again, as I said before, growth is not linear. Growth can again, you can get better and still have unfortunate circumstances. They won five games with it again after having that stat that was thrown at their heads all year during the last Kemba year about being able to finish close games. Kemba can't finish close games, this, that, and the third. And they ended up winning five of those games this year. I think a lot of this is... I think a lot of this is going to be really, really interesting. And I guess the thing is, the Charlotte Hornets are not as far away from being a relevant playoff team than we think they are. They just have to, unfortunately, nail this third pick. And I'm not necessarily sure you can do it in this draft, quite honestly. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, Kanata, though, thank you for talking so much Hornets with me. Really appreciate you coming on. I'm I'm sure I'll be pestering you again in, in the future. Uh, if you guys are not following him on Twitter, he's at Nata the Scribe. That's at N-A-T-A-A-T-H-E-S-C-R-I. B-E, and I look forward to reading your Twitter feed once the Hornets select Obi Toppin at number three or after trading down. Don't, 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 don't curse me. Don't curse me like that, Dan. <laughs> we we we've done this for an hour plus now, and now you're just gonna curse me like that. Why? Why? <laughs> I had to slip it in there, but seriously, thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of fun, as always. Dude, as always, my pleasure, man. Seriously. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.